Welcome to another edition of Break Fake Rules. We have flown across the country to Bulwark Media to have a conversation with Sarah Longwell. In a time when democracy's on retreat, what does it take to break fake rules and stand up for it? Some rules are meant to be broken, and there certainly are a lot of fake ones out there, especially in philanthropy, where, you know, these rules that we have in philanthropy can actually make things harder to make society better. Today, we have a very special guest, Sarah Longwell. And, you know, Sarah, I am trying to figure out how to refer to you organizationally, because the Longwell empire is a growing, growing empire out there. Yeah. There is Bulwark. There's Longwell Partners. Uh, You also have the Democracy Innovation Fund Mm -hmm. and so on and so on. So how how do we begin with you? Where where do we want to focus our our time and our energy when it comes to what Sarah Longwell's up to these days? I mean, while I have a lot of different groups, there are PACs, there are C4s, there's political work, there's the journalism work with the bulwark, there's the C3 work. They all kind of layer into one one space, which is that I'm a lifelong Republican who in 2016 uh, became very alarmed uh, by Donald Trump and what he meant for democracy. I spent a lot of time thinking about how do we save the Republican Party from Donald Trump? And of course, now seven or eight years into that work, it's clear that that threat of Trump not only remains, not just the man, but sort of the toxic force he's unleashed on the party. And Mm -hmm. I think all of our projects layer into... How do we build sort of responsible center-right institutions that are separate from the sort of MAGA forces? How do we defend democracy in the face of an acute threat? How do we educate voters? How do we bring swing voters into the pro-democracy coalition? And more importantly, or most importantly, how do you build sort of a big, broad pro-democracy coalition that spans from Liz Warren to Liz Cheney? And so I obviously spent a lot of my time on sort of the Liz Cheney side of that or the center-right side of that, but, you know, it has been very important to have pro-democracy voices on the right uh, in this moment. And so we try to sort of marshal and galvanize those voices through all these different projects. I mean, this moment right now is an interesting one as we sit here, because I'm more center-left, if not far left. Mm. And I have to say that in the time I have had the benefit of spending with you, your voice and the unbelievable amount of knowledge you bring from doing what, three million focus groups a year? Three million, yeah. Yes. That's right. Um, Really has affected me. It's influenced me. It's affected the way I think about the bubble I live in on the left and how, how I put up my own barriers to being in community with people on the right. And that is just playing right into the forces that we see, you know, ripping our country apart. So when I hear you speak, I hear so many things that I share in common with you and your perspective, uh, which has greatly changed a lot of the way I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we came into this space, and let's just call it the democracy space, which was kind of a new space in the light of sort of post 2016 world, I think there was a lot of donors, foundations who would have considered themselves uh, on the center, center left, mm-hmm. who did not fund things that had the word Republican in it or conservative in it right. or think about sort of center right ecosystems. That just wasn't how they were thinking about it. And it look, I think it took a threat, an acute threat for us to figure out, OK, if we're going to build this coalition, we're going to have to make common cause with a bunch of people 
we hadn't previously done a lot of business with. I mean, I had spent uh, most of my career doing work with exclusively donors on the right. And so it took a while, I think, to both earn trust and also for the philanthropic community to understand the role that they could play in helping to elevate sort of pro-democracy center-right voices. I think it took a while to get comfortable with that. I would like to go down this road in a big way, but I want to take a big step back okay. and go to the rule, the big rule you, you've broken in the Republican Party, which is to be a good Republican, you need to be in the MAGA world. So in a way, this mold is being des- has been designed where this is what it takes to be a Republican. You said, and, and many, many important and influential players who you work with every day said, we're not, gonna, we're not playing along with that rule as it's being established right before us. How did you break it? How did it feel to break out of it? And what benefit do you think you're bringing to society by breaking it? Yeah, you know, first of all, Breaking it was easy. For me, it was easy because Trump and his whole uh, ethos, everything about it was wrong to me. So Mm -hmm. the breaking it wasn't that hard. And honestly, for me, I had already been sort of the weirdest of all species before, which was a gay Republican. Mm. And so, like, I was kind of used to this idea that, you know, the Democrats don't like you if you're a Republican, Republicans don't like you if you're gay, and you just sort of have to stand in your space Mm. uh, and be who you are. And I learned two really important things, actually, doing my work on marriage equality that I carry with me today in my democracy work. So one is that you do not need to convince everybody. And so for me, I I knew early on that part of my role in breaking with the MAGA movement was going to be figuring out how to find that small slice of voters that we could bring into the pro-democracy coalition from the center right. And that's what we did in marriage equality. It was about, you know, You didn't need all the Republicans to pass gay marriage uh, in a state. You just needed enough to make a majority coalition, Mm -hmm. right? Then the second lesson I learned was really about validators, the importance of conservative and Republican validators. And so I had been part of Log Cabin Republicans, which was the LGBT Republican group. I was part of the founding member of Young Conservatives for the Freedom to Marry. And so this idea that you needed to have voices that identified with the right, but who were advocating on behalf of marriage equality is sort of the way that I I immediately thought about my role with Donald Trump sort of being on the scene. It's how I think about democracy, which is I know we need conservative uh, validators Mm -hmm. who are explaining why this moment is so fraught, explaining why we should reject Trump and sort of all that comes with him. And also, like, that I needed to go find everybody else who thought like me and figure out how to make elevate their voices. I mean, the bulwark was really just a bunch of pulling a bunch of people together who were conservatives who objected to what was happening and, like, putting it down on paper and saying it out loud. And so uh, the the one thing you said, though, in terms of the rule being – a good Republican. I don't think anybody thinks we're good Republicans anymore. We are. We are apostates. We are out of the club. Right. Um, and that has severe implications for you. I mean, I've heard some of your some of the hosts on some of the podcasts talk about. They reference the fact that they know of other Republicans who do not want to play the MAGA game but their livelihood depends yeah. on it. Yeah, I mean, look, there was a lot of reasons why people stayed on the team. Um, and and I think, you know, one of the hardest parts about all of it was just sort of the heart, the heartbreak of seeing a bunch of people you knew and had known your entire sort of professional life who were with you in 2016. We were all sort of never Trumpers together. 
And then sort of one by one, Charlie Sykes uh, calls it the invasion of the body snatchers. We like saw our friends get sort mm-hmm. of sucked back right. in and, and sort of make their accommodations. I don't understand it, um, but I, I can articulate the rationale. And a lot of it had to do with, well, how am I going to feed my family? This is, right. you know, my tribe. This is what right. I've done my entire life. And I think uh, in the face of those things, my response has always been build new tribes, build new institutions. Mm. What's been lucky for me, though, is that I got to build those institutions and I could find people who believed in them and were willing to fund them. And so I felt like I didn't have to compromise. And I guess I don't I don't want to let people get away with saying that it was just because they, you know, they had a job to do. Uh, and so they were willing to make those compromises. Okay. I think there's a lot of us who decided to go do something different and take a risk. And, you know, I don't want to sound, I don't know if this sounds cheesy or not, but like you have to just do the right thing and like mm-hmm. hope that the good will come your way from that. You right. know, like doing the right thing is sort of where you start, doing the thing that matters to you. And that's why when you were like, well, was this hard? Like the hard thing for me would have been sucking it up and staying in a world where you had to make like moral and personal accommodations to appease your tribe, to appease sort of the Trumpist cult. And I've watched how far, I mean, in the beginning, people rationalized, they told themselves, well, this is just for a short period of time, or it's just now the whole thing. You can see how when you make a Faustian bargain like that, how you give an inch and you wind up miles away from where you started. And so there's no point that I look back and think, boy, I wish I'd wish I'd done that. I'm going to bring this into the philanthropic domain a little bit. And we talk about this on this show all the time. The people that come on who I would say are the, the, they're breaking the rules of the philanthropic sector. And they, there are some simple ones that you may or may not be aware of where you sit. But in this country, you are required to give out a minimum of 5% of your assets annually as a private foundation. I didn't know that. Most, well, what do you think it is? Is it a minimum or a maximum? Well, I guess if they set that as the minimum, my guess is then that's what people do. That is what people do. Yeah. So for those of us that go well beyond, we actually try to strive beyond five in our hallways. We're weird. We're different. But here's the interesting part. When you talk to people that work in the sector, they work at foundations where that is the accepted rule. But they, they don't want to do it. Mm. They know they could do more. They want to see more. They want to see more from their foundation. They don't speak publicly about it. They don't try to start organizations or do something differently. They just keep doing it. And they're riding along in that rule. I know there are people that are watching and listening right now who are working at foundations where they are completely limited in what they can do. And they keep doing it because they, like you said, they need the income. But inside, they are a reformer that wants something different. So it's just an interesting parallel I'm drawing here because you want to be in it. You want to be a part of whatever your tribe is. And if the tribe starts to move on you, that's a difficult decision. Do I stay with it or not? I've had people say to me all the time, because I'm very public about my views on the sector. Mm. And people ask me all the time, like, aren't you worried about being fired? Aren't you worried about upsetting the family? Aren't you worried about putting your staff in jeopardy? And sure, I do worry about those things. But it's all false. It's a false narrative. It's not real. So you are really out there. You're taking on a powerful political establishment. I'm just taking on philanthropy. Kudos to you and your team, because I think it takes an enormous amount of courage to take that on. Well, I appreciate that. Although the thing about the rules, maybe I just don't 
notice them. I'm not like a great rule person to that's begin with. That's the beauty of the rules. Uh, that's, <laughs> uh, and so like, I actually, I do find it weird when people feel confined by like all the conventions of, uh, and the trappings of the sort of tribalism stuff. Cause we, you get into it, you get into it because you're like, I believe this thing. Yeah. Right. Like I got into politics because I love politics and I think it's the collective way in which we make decisions about how we govern ourselves. And I have feelings about how we govern ourselves. So it's actually, it is sort of the same, right? Like you get into philanthropy because you think, Absolutely. I want to make a difference. I will say maybe the one big difference though, your, your philanthropic folks, they are still doing good. They're just doing slightly less good than maybe you want them to. Whereas in my case, these folks who are collecting a paycheck in order to go do active harm and harm that they know is harmful. One of the most frustrating things, although... <laughs> When you talk about it, like people tell you privately, man, has that been a hallmark of the last few years is a lot of Republicans being like, I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing, like hmm. keep it up, or I wish I could say that, or telling you that they feel exactly the same way, but that they're not at liberty to say it. Of course you are. If you talk to Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, the level of liberation that they feel yeah. from being able to say the thing that they think and speak authentically about what matters to them. I think they are, even though they have to have private security because of all the hate mail and the threats, any of them or any of the people in our world will tell you they are happier that they don't have to do this thing every day that makes them feel like gross inside. Right. So, you know, I think to your point, like people should uh, go go push to liberate themselves. What are they... What, what do they want to do more of? I mean, that's why we're here, Sarah, today. Yeah. That's what we're trying to push. Yeah. I want to just kind of say a few things about where we are. We are in the mighty Bulwark Studios, aren't we, right now? Yeah. And I've had an opportunity to speak with your staff. Um, They're great, aren't they? They are great. They are great. Strong I mean, team. Strong team. Yeah. Um, in some ways, your operation is the softer landing for progressive center foundations to support what you're doing. Yeah, look, we set our North Star as pro-democracy. Right. And as I try to explain, this isn't just, it's not a problem for Republicans, right? It's an American problem. Of course. And so it's got to be one of these things we all work to solve together. And just like I think donors recognized when it came to the marriage equality movement that the voices on the center right were going to be critical to building their broad coalition, I think the democracy movement or people who care about democracy have recognized that sort of center-right voices, bringing them in as part of the coalition is also deeply important. Anybody can be a democracy funder. And I think for a lot of, a lot of things that I've heard from donors or even organizations in the space, people who focus on climate or focus on racial justice, where they'll say, um, the climate folks are always asking me, are there Republicans who are good on climate? And the really what they need is Republicans who are good on democracy, Republicans who can be part of the coalition, like every single one of the issues to be durable, to make real lasting change has to include people on the center right. And so how do you get sort of responsible people on the center right? Well, you've got to in this fractured moment, you've got to build new things on the center right that don't exist, like that have been captured and pulled away. It's left this wide open space. And so how do you build sort of a big, broad pro-democracy coalition? How do you find Republicans that you can work with on a variety of issues so that compromise can get done, so you can do democracy? Well, that means investing in sort of a whole new pipeline on the center right. So I think, you know, for us, one of our major initiatives is the Democracy Innovation Fund, which is about building 
these sort of center pro-democracy institutions so that we can have a talent pipeline, so we can figure out how to fill this void and build into this space. And I think there's a lot of funders on the left who might think, well, that's not for me to do, or that's mm. not my role. And I guess my thing is, is like, it's one of those, if not you, who, it's got to happen. Otherwise, every single other priority that you have will languish with 49%. Like you just have to build that bigger coalition. You need it. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because it needs to be examined on from foundations that I think could be far more effective in this space. Well, I have to thank you so much for having us here. Uh, yeah, it's thanks been, for coming. It's been just uh, terrific to have the time with you. But I well, really next time you don't have to do a podcast with me to talk to me. You just <laughs> call me on the phone. It's, it's been a. Re- it's just been great, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today at Break Fake Rules. We will continue to learn more about how to do this and how to benefit society breaking fake rules. See you next time. Thanks. Next time on Break Fake Rules, hear from Priscilla Enriquez, CEO of the James B. McClatchy Foundation, as she leads her foundation's spend down to Sunrise, a brighter future in California's Central Valley. We're stuck in our own infrastructure that we've created. If we were just to take a pause and just think about that for a moment, what could you do more today to mitigate the problems down the road? We could solve a lot right now. Thank you for tuning in to Break Fake Rules. This show is brought to you by the Stubsky Foundation, where we are returning all our resources to the communities we call home in Hawaii and the San Francisco Bay Area by 2029. Our producer extraordinaire is Claire Callahan. The show is mixed and edited by Patrick Childers of Odd Conduit Media. Special thanks to our videographers and visual production team who fly from all over the world to be a part of this, Steve Johnson and Brooke Van Dam of Sea Boundless. Subscribe to the Stepsky Foundation YouTube channel to watch videos of each episode. You can find us on YouTube by searching Stepsky Foundation. We hope these conversations don't end here, so join the conversation with me on LinkedIn. <laughs>